We saw Psalm 34 quoted in the liturgy. It happens to be a psalm that we recently did as a family during our devotions. As we're going through the psalms together, we're ahead of where we are as a church, but we are seeing this theme over and over again in the psalms. The way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. The way of the wicked, as we saw in Psalm 1, is temporary. And they blow away like chaff in the wind, right? And they come into judgment. The way of the righteous is eternal. And so there's this constant choice. As we said, that was the introduction to the Psalms. It will be something that we will see over and over again reminded of. You have a choice. Let's come to Jesus and live. Well, today we are in Psalm 3 and 23. They're both very similar psalms. And we'll read Psalm 3 to start, and then we will take a look at Psalm 23 a little at a time. So let's stand and read together Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. That's the Lord's word. Let's pray. Father, as we meditate upon your word today, help us to understand what we read and hear and what may become the the love and passion of our hearts to meditate upon your word and your law and your ways. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Psalm 3 is the first psalm in the book that follows the two introductory psalms. And you'll remember from the first of those, as I mentioned a moment ago, that the reader is presented with that choice to be blessed by being a tree that is firmly planted in the water of God's word or to be ultimately judged along with the wicked. And in continuation of that introduction in Psalm 2, we saw how the wicked respond to God's ultimatum as well as to their promised judgment. They plot and they rage against God, against his anointed son Jesus Christ and against all who would follow him. And the introduction ends on a high note. The Lord laughs. He mocks at those who think that they can thwart his plan. And he encourages believers to take refuge in him and so Perhaps if you were to guess what the topic would be of the first psalm to follow that introduction, you would potentially guess something like uplifting, (laughs) victorious. 
You'd probably not guess what we find in verse 1 of Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me and saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And yet, given the reality described in Psalm 2 about the constant raging and plotting of the wicked, should we be surprised by the persecution that God's people face? By the way, the word that we find at the end of verse 2 and two other times, and we'll find it periodically within the Psalms, is the word selah which means to pause and reflect upon what was just said. It's as if the psalmist, and in this case King David, wants all those singing and accompanying the psalm to stop, to think about the persecution, in this case, of the righteous. What are we to think? What questions are we to ask? Should we defend ourselves against our enemies? Should we give up? Should we despair? Well, verse 3 continues, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. And he answered me, and the lifter of my head, and I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke up again, for the Lord sustained me. So what are we to think when we are surrounded by our enemies? The answer comes immediately. We are to remember that God is our shield and our refuge. He offers peace and calm in the midst of the chaos and the turbulence. That's also the theme of Psalm 23. And here are the first verses of that psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Those are familiar words to many. And they convey a sense of peace and care, shepherd and green pastures, still waters and restoration. They lull us into almost skipping over the fact that if God is a shepherd, that that suggests that we are sheep. And if the Bible didn't compare believers to sheep over and over again, might be tempted to think that maybe this is just a bit of poetry in Psalm 23, but given the frequency of the analogy, we are invited to see that this comparison is true. We are like sheep, and we need a loving shepherd. Children, if you could be any animal... I often ask the grandkids this, a lion, a tiger, a bear, a shark, any number of ferocious or impressive creatures, what would you choose? One of my granddaughters says a unicorn, but I, I, you know, it's real animals. What would you choose? I asked that of Mrs. Walker once, and she said she would want to be a dog. And her reasoning is she wants to be taken care of and fed and loved and told what a good dog she is. I thought I might be an animal at least at the top of the food chain. I don't want to be eaten, and I want to live for a while, so maybe a killer whale, but Mrs. Walker told me I would be better suited as a hermit crab. That's what she said. (laughs) Well, in all the times that I've heard the question asked, not one person has ever responded that they want to be a sheep. 
Intuitively, I think most people realize that sheep are brainless animals. Those of you who raise sheep know that to be true. They're timid and, and fearful. They're stubborn. They're unthinking. And yet the behavior of sheep and human beings is similar in many ways. Our mass mind, our fears and timidity, our stubbornness, sometimes stupidity, even our habits have these parallels that are of profound insight. And so if we're sheep, and if as Psalm 3 and Psalm 23 describe, we are surrounded by enemies, or as John 10 says, we are in danger of thieves and robbers sneaking into the fold, how do we stand fast and not be terrified in the presence of our adversaries? How do we remain of one mind, always moving in the direction that God would lead us? The answer is that our shepherd and our shield, Jesus Christ, leads us. Like sheep who do not think on their own, we are guided by our heavenly shepherd. Philip Keller, in his classic book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, writes these words, In memory, I can still see one of the sheep ranches in our district, which was operated by a tenant sheepman. He ought never have been allowed to keep sheep. His stock were always thin, weak, and riddled with disease or parasites. And again and again they would come and stand at the fence, staring blankly through the woven wire at the green pastures which my flock enjoyed. Had they been able to speak, I am sure that they would have said, Oh, to be free from this awful owner. And that is the situation of so many of the sheep in this world that are unfortunately under the master of death and sin and the devil. But that's not our situation. And so Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, and therefore I shall not want. We graze upon the green pastures of God's good kingdom, and we look ahead to the blessed hope of a future inheritance. And David writes, that with the Lord is our shepherd, he is and we are without want. And of course, to be without want is not to be without hardship. I know David, as the psalmist here, experienced many different types of trials, even physical privation. He was bounded and hounded and harried and pursued by Saul and then by his own son Absalom many insurrections during his reign, mostly his own family. In Psalm 3, he describes himself surrounded by enemies. But he wasn't the only one. There have been many, many others, obviously, in the stories of the Bible, but also in Christian history, all suffering hardship. So being without want must be something different than being without need. Revelation 3.17 reminds us that even those who have great wealth and no material needs are still in want. Right? Jesus says, for you say, I'm rich, I need nothing, I've prospered. But you don't realize that you are grazing on barren fields. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And to the rich young ruler, Jesus said in Mark 20, 10, 21, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. 
Come, follow me. So how could a rich young ruler, probably someone that we would in, or at least in American culture, be idolizing and looking up to, how how could that kind of person be lacking anything? Well, it must be that wealth in God's economy is not measured by our possessions. It's not measured by our worldly treasures, but rather by our eternal hope and our enjoyment of God's blessings. That's true wealth. And our shepherd knows about our lives from morning to evening and constantly interceding on our behalf, constantly promising that even as we share with him in a fellowship of suffering, that he produces in us true joy. He satisfies our true needs. And again, one of the themes of the Psalms is the river of delights, river of joys and blessings that are to be had. They are well worth the choice of being surrounded by enemies. Well, Psalm 3 and 23, they tell us of Christ's care for us. Psalm 23 says that Content in the pasture that our shepherd places us, we lay down by still waters. Just as Psalm 3 said that we are able to lay down and sleep. And that, I, that image of, of lying down in safety and comfort, that's a vastly different image than what happens to sheep that wander off on their own. I once learned about what happens to sheep that do that and what it means to be cast down And that phrase refers to a sheep turned over on its back, can't get up by itself. The family and I watched a video this week of such a sheep with its four legs pathetically flailing in the air, trying to roll over and stand up with no success. And what happens is these typically stockier sheep that often have full fleece, often pregnant mothers, are laying down and they roll slightly to the side to stretch and what happens is the center of gravity shifts and all of a sudden they've tipped over and they are on their back. And as they feel a sense of panic and start to paw at the air frantically, they roll even further until they are stuck. And they lay there panicked. Their body often builds up gases which then begins to cut off circulation, and they can quickly die in a short time if they're not found. And that's why it's essential for a careful shepherd to be looking over the flock every day, to be measuring them, to know them individually, and to note when one is missing. Because if one is missing, the thought immediately flashes, they may be cast down somewhere. I must go and find them. They're in imminent danger. And that's the same thing as our shepherd. Our shepherd that we learn from the Gospels, if one is missing, goes in search of that sheep. And I mentioned Keller earlier, and he says this. He notes about this about sheep and, and being able to lie down. They will only lie down in four conditions. They're free from fear, They are free from friction within the flock. They are not tormented by flies or parasites, and they are not hungry. 
And that's only what the shepherd can provide. And that first condition, being free from fear, sheep are, are timid. They're easily panicked. When we lived in the foothills of Calaveras County, it was common to see warning signs that threatened to shoot stray dogs that would go into ranch land. Hector's used to tell us stories about uh, that type of issue. And the reason that the ranchers actually have to shoot the stray dogs is that a barking dog can frighten an entire flock. In fact, two dogs have been known to kill as many as 300 sheep on a single night. So nothing can so quiet and comfort a sheep than seeing the shepherd in the field. And when we were lost in sin, God, who was at war with us, we were in a state of being in bondage to fear, but God has declared peace. And so he is not only at peace with us, but he is the one who protects us from the robbers and the thieves that steal in at night. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7 that God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of love and self-control. He says that we have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And in 1 John 4.18 we read, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And again, we see that analogy of the pasture, not to having everything that we want, but to really having what we need. Especially with regard to our eternity. And so perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with the punishment that comes as a natural result of sin and its consequence in our lives. And instead, John says... But whoever fears has not been perfected in love, we love because he first loved us. And so the shepherd's love for us enables us to live in peace. That's why David in Psalm 4.8 says, In peace I will both lie down and I will sleep. For you, O Lord, alone make me dwell in safety. The second condition for lying down, Keller said, is in the absence of friction. Like a coop of chickens. A few weeks ago, we were given the Ralph's chickens to add to our coop. And we had to separate them into two different areas so that they would get used to one another. And they just stood on either side of this chicken wire looking at each other. Like, what are you doing in my area? And that's where we come, this whole idea of pecking order, right, is the, the supreme chicken establishing her superiority and her dominion over this flock. Well, that's the same thing that happens among sheep. The top sheep establishes her dominance by butting against the weaker or the younger ones if they take a position that she desires, and that leads to tension and competition. And Keller says it needs to be free of friction. All of that ceases in the presence of the shepherd. There's this great promise given in Ezekiel 34 that I'll read to you. Where God says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost... 
I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. And I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, and between rams and male goats. And then we read this part down in verse 21, because, and remember what I was just saying about that friction in the flock, because you push with side and shoulder, it's referring to that, and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad, I will rescue my flock. They'll no longer be your prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. See what God is saying? I'm going to remove that friction. When we see that happening in the body, it's wonderful that God, through his spirit, makes us into one people, a united people where pride and competitiveness begins to lessen and diminish. We stop jockeying for position. We stop taking advantage of the weak like we see in the Corinthian church, right? Those are held in check and even canceled if the shepherd is is present and active and loved in the body. The third condition for lying down is being free from tormenting pests. I'll mention that in a moment. And then the last condition is not to be hungry. Well, if you were in Israel, you would realize that unlike, let's say, some of the areas in our own country, that it takes a lot of labor, time, and skill to clear rough and rocky land and to bring water and to tear out brush and to prepare the soil for a green pasture. And the Lord is described in the scriptures as giving us the nutrients and the green grass that we need to grow in the Christian life. 1 Peter 2, 2 says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. It's this great parallel of the nutrients and antibodies of a mother's milk similar to God's word. Jesus would say in the wilderness during his temptations, man simply does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And thankfully, as we have with our shepherd, he has a deliberate plan, he has a deliberate rotation from one grazing place to another. That's this idea of leading us in paths of righteousness where he is taking us from one pasture to another, oftentimes seasonally, from the lowlands up to the high tablelands, God moves us on. And as the good shepherd, Jesus says in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And many people memorize that verse and say that they will follow wherever Christ leads. But what about when that path of righteousness leads to difficulty? What about when it leads through the valley of the shadow of death, as Psalm 23 describes? Even though I walk, David says, through the valley of the shadow of death, 
I will fear no evil. And then in Psalm 3.6, it says, we read that earlier, I will not be afraid, even of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me. When we read those words and those phrases, the valley of the shadow of death or many thousands of enemies, those are fearful things. And here we've just been talking about laying down in green pastures and sleeping in peace and contentment and having everything that we need. Why do we move from that image to walking along a path of righteousness through a valley of the shadow of death? It's because Jesus never made light of the cost of following him. He never said that it would be easy. In fact, he told us it would be a life of self-denial and rigorous training and a whole new set of attitudes. Christ calls us to follow him along these paths that are often narrow, winding roads, hard-to-see roads that sometimes go up the mountains that seem like only a mountain goat could walk upon. And he calls us to follow him into new green pastures with the confidence that what he ultimately is leading us to is not our deaths, but to our good. And he is there for our protection. In Psalm 3-7, David says, the shepherd will take his rod. And even as he's leading us along these paths, he strikes Psalm 3.7 says, our enemies on the cheek. He says even, you break the teeth of the wicked. In Psalm 23.5 it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Where is that table? Well, in the context of, of this image that God has given us of taking care of sheep in, in Jesus' time, it's, it's this highland, it's the tableland that, that the shepherd takes the sheep up to and he places the table in those, if you will, a place for them to eat. And it says, in the midst of their enemies, and what might you think would be their enemies up at those higher altitudes? Would you be thinking wolves or, or lions well, the sheep's biggest enemy in the highlands is the fly, of all things. Summertime is fly time, even at high altitudes. And there are warble flies and bot flies and heel flies and nose flies and deer flies and black flies and mosquitoes and gnats and other types of parasites. And there are often the sheep's greatest enemy at this point, especially the nose fly. Those flies buzz around the sheep's head and attempt to deposit their eggs in the damp mucous membranes of the sheep's nose. Now some of you are saying that's pretty gross. Well, if the flies are successful, the small larvae, they will work their way up into the sheep's head and cause this intense irritation that causes the sheep to bang their heads against tree trunks and against the ground and rocks, rub them in the soil. They'll often kill themselves in the frenzy of trying to get rid of this 
irritation that they can't rid themselves of. And so it's because of this that when the nose flies, they hover around the flock, the sheep begin to panic. And so what does the shepherd do? What does Psalm 23 say? You anoint my head with oil. That's where that's coming from. It was a linseed oil mixed with sulfur and tar. Now, you, you might think, I do not want to be anointed by my shepherd with linseed oil, sulfur, and tar. But that, that ointment, that anointing, suddenly does away with all those enemies. Gone is the nose fly and all of the aggravation and frenzy and irritation and restlessness. Instead, that fourth condition that Keller mentions, they are able to lie down in contentment, takes place. And isn't it interesting that the Bible has a name for Satan called Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies. In our own lives, Satan's distractions and that of our worldly flesh, they can build into nasty torments, but our shepherd anoints us with oil, the oil of his Holy Spirit, and he enables us to resist those distractions. And that joy that results from the care of the shepherd causes David in Psalm 3 to write, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah, in other words, stop there again and meditate upon what I just said. What did I just say? I said salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is on your people. Yes, I'm surrounded by thousands of enemies, but your rod breaks them. You have saved me. And similarly, in Psalm 23, he concludes, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And what we see in Psalm 3 and 23 is this summary of the Christian life. We face opposition, persecution, various trials, but through it, if we will depend upon God as sheep, depend upon the shepherd... We will be led along the paths of righteousness where God prepares a table for us even in the presence of our enemies. And he offers us peace and rest and joy. He breaks down the things that divide us. He breaks down the strife between people and and he makes us one people, one family, one flock. And that enables Paul to boldly declare in Philippians 1, for I know that this, referring to this momentary trouble that we face, will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Jesus himself says this in John 10, verse 12, as we get there. He says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. You see, the hireling doesn't even, he doesn't own the sheep. He has no vested interest 
in them to the extent that he wants to lay down his life for them. Whom do you want to look after you? That's what Jesus is asking. Do you want the hireling to look after you who has no interest in when the difficulty comes, when the enemies come, he's going to go running? You want Satan to be your master and your shepherd, or do you want the good shepherd? Because verses 14 and following say, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And just as my Father knows me, and I know the Father, I actually lay down my life for my sheep. Which one do you want? You want to be a tree, plant living water? You want to be a sheep, looked after by the good shepherd? Or do you want to be the wicked whose life is short, who will be in the judgment, whose shepherd is the devil who has no care for their souls and who lets them graze upon nothing that is nutritious, nothing that will sustain them. And when the time comes, he's going to be right with them in the judgment. Which do you want? And when Jesus says that he knows his sheep, he speaks of this covenantal knowledge, a personal relationship that is bound by his own oath to look after his people. And then look at what God says here. This is a beautiful passage. Remember I said earlier about how often the Bible talks about sheep and shepherds. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from among the people and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel, that shall be their grazing land. Okay, that's the table ends from Psalm 23. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the straight. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. The fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them in the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their season, and they shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field will yield their fruit. And the earth, the earth shall yield its increase. And they shall be secure in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none 
shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, with them. And that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. You are my sheep, the human sheep of my pasture. And I am your God, declares the Lord God. And I think we can see from from that passage in Ezekiel, upon Psalm 3, upon Psalm 23, other passages, why Jesus tells his disciples in John 10, 16, he will make his people into one flock under one shepherd himself. Will you accept that today? We accept the fact that throughout the Old Testament with the Lord calling himself the shepherd and his people the sheep, that when Jesus said in the Gospels, these are my sheep. I am the good shepherd. That there was no confusion that he is emphasizing there's one flock, one shepherd, one people, and he is taking all of the analogies of the Old Testament, Psalm 3, 23, Ezekiel, and others, and he is saying, I am the one that was being talked about in the Old Testament. I am the good shepherd. There can be no question of what he was claiming. All of the covenantal promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled in him. He is our Savior. He is the only one that can protect us from the enemies of sin and death. He is the one that Ezekiel was talking about that breaks the bars of the yoke under sin as he offers us his own more gentle yoke. He is the one that delivers out of slavery, who seeks the lost, who brings back the stray, binds up the injured, and strengthens the weak. And the key to the gospel is to understand not only what he has claimed, but what that says about you. You are sheep. As Ezekiel says, the human sheep of his pasture. And left to your own, you will perish. It's that simple. Do you want to continue in self-righteousness, in autonomy, at least what you think is autonomy? Independence to go your own way with the way of the wicked, which really is no way after all? Or will you seek the protection and the guidance and the care of the Good Shepherd? Hear the gospel this morning. God offers green pastures to you. He offers you salvation. He offers you his love. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. For salvation belongs to the Lord, and his blessing is upon you. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, you are the gracious and good God who is the great shepherd. I pray that you would help us to be thankful for that, to remember that, to rejoice in that, even as we prepare to sit at your table, Lord. 
Thank you for the salvation that you give us. You really just ask that we would cease our own attempts to govern our lives under the false sense of autonomy and self-reliance and self-righteousness. Lord, may you speak deeply to our hearts today. It's in Jesus' name I pray.